This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This is the Birdshot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. Yukonubis 40 Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage Breaker, Uplander, and Dakota 283. On this episode of the show, we're talking to the Gordon Setter Man, Stephen Faust of Stony Brook Gordon Setters. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 160. Welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Got a great show for you. As always today, we'll be talking to Stephen Faust of Stony Brook Gordon Setters, Grouse and Woodcock Hunting Guide, Dog Trainer, Handler, and one of the people that I know that spends a lot of days in the woods each and every year chasing Grouse and Woodcock, and he's somebody I turn to for advice often. So we'll get to Stephen in just a bit. First, I want to mention the December Patreon giveaway Depending on when you're listening to this, it is December 30th today. You may or may not have time left. If you are signed up as a Patreon supporter of the Birdshot Podcast before the end of December, you will be eligible for the December giveaway, which is a 2022 grouse and woodcock hunt at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Thank you for everybody that has chosen to become a Patreon supporter of the Birdshot Podcast. I appreciate it, and you will be a big part of the Birdshot Podcast trajectory in 2022. We'll keep the giveaways coming. January is going to be an Onyx Elite card, and we'll see what we come up with beyond that. As we rapidly approach the end of 2021, I'm taking some time to reflect back on an excellent 2021 fall hunting season, which is effectively over for me. We got covered up, buried in snow this week, which I was very happy about because we got some cold weather hitting us right now and more to come. 
So prior to Monday, Tuesday this week, the conditions in the woods were not looking so great for the grouse, but we now have over a foot of fluffy powdery snow and the grouse should have plenty of snow to burrow under with these cold temps on the way. So very happy to report that to all those interested in rough grouse survival in this part of the world. But I hope others are still out there chasing their dogs and chasing birds, enjoying maybe a little bit warmer weather. Although I'm transitioning into winter mode, I'm doing some snowshoeing, running the dogs, be hitting the cross-country skis soon, and I had a good run. It was a great fall, great hunting season. It's been a great year, lots of exciting developments and challenges and ups and downs, and some of which listeners of the show are a little privy to, I think. But very much looking forward to welcoming in the new year, 2022. Got some exciting announcements for the Birdshot podcast and for the things that will be keeping me busy, and I hope prospects are... Looking great for all the listeners out there. We're fast approaching that time of year where we start setting our sights on the next season, no matter how far away it is. It's always something to look forward to. So for those out there still enjoying it, just like I said last week, be happy, enjoy it, give your dog a pat on the back, take in that sunset wherever you find yourself. And I want to wish everybody out there listening a very, very happy new year. Thank you for tuning into the Birdshot Podcast. Again, I very much appreciate it this year in particular. I've tried to express my gratitude to all of you on this podcast over and over again. Hopefully you're not tiring of it, but I really do appreciate everybody out there listening. It means a lot to me, and I'm going to keep on doing it as long as I keep hearing from folks like you that listen, enjoy, and give me the feedback and suggestions that I need to keep this thing moving forward. So thanks again, everybody. Happy New Year. And with that said... Let's jump into our conversation today and welcome into the conversation and onto the podcast, former guest of the show of Stony Brook Gordon Setters, Stephen Faust. All right, buddy. Well, welcome back to the Birdshot Podcast. Last time I talked to you, Stephen, it was the Project Upland Podcast. Uh, it's funny, I, I just pulled this up, the old show post, and I feel like this has happened a few times. I published our previous episode, it was number 85, on December 12th, 2019, so basically two years ago to the day, uh, day, oh, day wow. be- yeah, day before my birthday, and uh, I remember at the time I was I was trying to capture a quote like from my guest, and I'm, the quote that I had published from you at that point was, watching a dog nail a grouse, to me, is the fun of the day. I honestly don't care if the bird is killed or not. I just love to see the dogs point them. I would say that probably sums up about any conversation you and I might have. That sounds like most of our conversations, <laughs> yes, sir. Thanks for having me back. I uh, didn't realize it had been almost two years to the day, but seeing you every fall, we catch up quite a bit. But, uh, yeah, that's yeah. I, you can still use that quote. That's Honestly, that's just watching a dog point, and I see it a couple thousand times a year, and it just never gets old. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Stephen Faust, Stony Brook, Gordon Setters, grouse and woodcock, up and bird hunting guide, dog trainer, breeder, man of many, uh, many talents. That's for sure. <laughs> many passions. I don't know about talents, but <laughs> how you, how you feeling at this point in the season? Feeling good? I'm still feeling good. Yes, sir. Um, I think I've got 68 days under the belt, month and a half to go and okay. physically feel good. So. Awesome. Yeah. Not bad. 68 days. I mean, you, you are obviously very, you know, you're guiding and you spend a lot of time in Minnesota. We'll talk about that. So you're you're in the woods a lot. 68 days, is that kind of right about where you are normally this time of year? Yeah, 
Yeah, actually a little bit behind where I have been because okay. the Woodcock season started later in Minnesota this year. Um, you know, we were we were late in Minnesota this year by a week from last year and the years before. So, but not bad. You know, about right about schedule, and that's just actually you know days of of loading up and getting out in the woods. I mean, I'm technically in the woods every day. Right. We get done. To, you know, I'll I'll work the puppies across the road, and and you know, it's just kind of how I, how I train my young dogs as well. I train them in the woods, and I take advantage of this time of year and make sure I get out every day. Yeah. I, yeah, I was away for the Minnesota grouse and woodcock opener. Did they open on the same day this year? Is that what happened? No, no, no. Oh, the, they, uh, the it was opened. a week late. Okay. Yeah, the, the woodcock opened a, a week after the grouse. Okay, it, which is – that's fairly typical. I think sometimes – or maybe I'm getting mixed up between Wisconsin and Minnesota. Between well, the no, two – last year – Last year, Minnesota, they both opened. On they the did. Thing. Okay, all they right. Did. Correct. They Wisconsin's correct. got a. They have a little different way, I think, of like nailing landing their ruffed grouse opener, and so sometimes they they vary between Minnesota and Wisconsin. But it's one of those notes. But yeah, so okay, so yeah, that started a week later in Minnesota. Well, I know you were hunting yesterday, so I've got. I always, I guess, I'm just a Minnesotan, Stephen, but I always find a way to work in the weather here. But it's like zero degrees <laughs> here. I'm looking at fresh snow we had a really weird 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 stretch of weather this this week we had some really nice days and then we had the system come through and i think it was there was like threats of tornadoes and stuff and it was it was pretty crazy but it's it's cold and snow on the ground i know it's not that like that down by you (laughs) what uh what do things look like down there (laughs) well it's i mean it's it's all all the leaves and everything are down um we've had some cold days you know we've been down in the low 20s but actually today is supposed to be in the upper 60s oh wow it's about 60 already, um, so, you know, not not bad. I mean, unfortunately, my client for the day had fallen and, and gotten hurt last week, so I didn't have anyone, and, and then to talk to you yesterday about doing this. But, yeah. but you know, a 70-degree day is kind of warm to be in the woods, but, you know, we, we do what we have to do. But it's, it's a little different. I can understand why the woodcock make it down here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was going to sort of ask you about, you know, temperature can be – very relative and obviously you spent a bunch of time up here so you felt sort of the season change and stuff but if it's you know if it is high 60s up there i mean that sounds really warm to me thinking about being in the woods and that it's probably because that sort of conjures up like thinking about you know mid to late september you have a day like that and i'm thinking of thick woods and stuff but you mentioned you know foliage is for the most part down if you start getting up into elevation i mean can you climb out of that a little bit or is it is it going to be a warm day in the woods you can, but it, you know, even it's still going to be warm. And yeah. you know, when you, if you're if you're grouse hunting down here this time on a day like this, you're going to really be sweating yeah. if you're climbing the mountains. But um, you know, it's not bad for the woodcock. You're down in the woods, and most of our good woodcock is, is on the some sort of a waterway, you know, a river, creek mm. beds, things like that. So for the dogs, they have constant water supply. That's generally no problem. But uh, we did end up at t-shirts yesterday, so. Okay. But yeah. you're right. It's kind of like early season up there. You know, plenty of days hunted in t-shirts th- this year. Yeah. Until it cooled down. So it, it's similar. You know, the dogs the dogs are a little better off now because they're in much better shape than the early season. And they, they seem to deal with it a little better. Sure. Yeah. I think I wore a t-shirt in the grouse woods more this year than I ever have. And, and part of that is because I, I used to just resist it, you know, no matter how warm it was i would wear some kind of long sleeve 
even if it was a lightweight one. But this year, I just kind of said, screw it, and <laughs> wore a T-shirt a lot. But it was warm. It was warm. You know, and, and, and I don't like the feel of a lanyard, you know, my whistle around my neck or a T-shirt. Oh, yeah. Yep. I just don't like that rubbing on my neck. But, yeah, we wore T-shirts more this year, I think, than, I, than I'd ever remember doing so. But, but I just, you know. I'd rather do that than sweat. I don't like to sweat through a shirt in the woods. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that gets uncomfortable, and then everything is compounding at that point. So it it, it yeah. is nice, you know, if you can some of the, you can wear some of the lightweight sort of performance fabrics, and I mean, you can be about as comfortable as you could possibly be, even though it's I wouldn't say that you're comfortable, but it's doing what you can to be out in the woods. It's yeah, yeah, better than not yeah. being there. <laughs> exactly right. That's right. Exactly right. So what? Uh, how was the hunt yesterday? What what does hunting look like down there right now? Um, well, we've got some pretty decent bird numbers in. Uh, okay. I've been averaging, you know, um, kind of early still, but averaging around twenty woodcock up a day. Okay. Yesterday, I had an older gentleman that I've had out for years. You know, generally once or twice a year for I don't know five or six years now, I guess. And you know, like we were talking about before we started getting older, you know, he doesn't have an all day in him anymore. So we, I guess, we wrapped up early, right after lunch, maybe. And uh, so I just took some time and scouted another spot. Um, you know, I never just load up and go home unless it's late. So if I yeah. have time to scout, I'll, I'll do that. So went in, and that's kind of fun to go in a new spot and find a few birds. So so I marked that spot, and we'll hit it next time. And just, I think we I kind of skipped over this, but just so the listeners know, generally you're in the southeast hunting. That's what we're talking about. Correct, right. Yes, sir. That's uh, central North Carolina. This time of year when the woodcock season comes in, I do almost all just exclusive woodcock guiding in, in the okay. central to eastern part of North Carolina. Okay, so now I know you've, I've asked you this before, but educate. I mean, can you, is there a chance you could flush a grouse or are you woodcock only at this point? No, woodcock only down there. Now, you, you know, depending on the weather, if you're grouse hunting, there are places that will hold woodcock. Okay. It's completely weather dependent, of course. You know, when you're up at three, 4,000 feet, it can be colder and the birds will move on, but but if it's mild like this, you can still possibly find a few. Okay. But that's not the that's not the densest part of the migration. So it's in in a sense, it's quite different than the typical you know very mixed bag grouse and woodcock hunt that you might find up in this part of the world. Correct, correct. You know, up there, you, you sometimes in some places you don't know what's going to flush grouse or woodcock or even both. You know, I've yeah. been, several times this year, I had some fa- fantastic opportunities that mixed doubles. But uh, no, ninety nine point nine percent of my woodcock guiding is going to be woodcock only. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, yeah, twenty bird, twenty bird days. I mean, and that's you know that's that's a good day just about anywhere. Yeah. Having yeah, having fun and getting some dog work. Yep. And it's completely weather dependent. You know, with this warm weather, they're funny. They'll oscillate back north a little bit, and kind of you know then we we shift north with them again. Just a couple counties, and then when it cools back down next week, they'll they'll drop back in. Yeah, I've heard that. I think when I was the first time, well, the first and only time I hunted down in Louisiana, Woodcock, some of the locals that I was hunting with, we we really didn't find many birds, and and people were talking about how you know just days prior they're walking into these places, and it's forty, fifty, sixty bird days, yeah. and I just yeah. had hadn't wasn't privy to that, but yeah, they. Their speculation was that, yep, they just sort of hop back north and sort of move around a little bit, which is pretty interesting if you think about it. Yeah, it really is. You know, when talking to the biologists, they, they always push the limit. They, You know, when they get back up north in the spring for, for breeding, you know, they get there with a little bit of snow on the ground. So I guess it's their way of, you know, kind of riding the frost line, so to speak, yeah. to to make sure that when it does warm up, they're, they're as, up there as quickly as possible, get the breeding cycle going. 
You mentioned woodcock hunting there, kind of focusing on waterways, rivers, creeks, corridors. What is the terrain and topography like? Is it still is it still pretty challenging? Like, do you get into some hills and elevation? You can. It's not terribly challenging, like in in the the real mountains, you know, like in the Appalachian. Okay. Chain. Um, but it, it, you know, you can get some good rollers. Um, some of the stuff I do, and it, it has some pretty decent rollers. And then you can get down east, like on the coastal plain, where it's just flat as a pancake. Oh. But it's just super thick and lots of briars and tangles. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about about the cover. What does it look like? Is you know, is there is there a mature timber canopy, and then you're looking for stuff underneath, or how does it set up for you typically? A very wide range. You can have that. You can have a, a mature timber camp canopy um, with with brushy underneath uh, that that'll hold birds. You can have some places that look like poplar uh, poplar stands from up north with the yellow poplar poplar oh, really? yellow poplar when it's growing back, and it's very dense, just like aspen. You know, it, it, they can get in there. Um, and I've got some of that around here where I work my training birds. Um, and then down east, just a thick pine you know young pine full of briars and and weeds and everything else yeah. it's just very mixed canopy so yeah i feel like I've, i recall seeing like from some of your videos of a heavy pine component sometimes mm-hmm. you flushing birds in in those pine trees and i i really think i read there's an article i'm thinking about that mike nadusky wrote a few years back that i thought he was maybe referring to the pines and i mm-hmm. that's kind of what i envision sometimes when i think about it i guess but i've never seen it obviously yeah, it, it, it's very strange, and some of the young pines are in there, and I've got a couple places that are so thick that it's, you know, I carry my weed snippers with me just to <laughs> cut the briars and stuff, but <laughs> it, the birds get in there, honestly, I don't know how they fly out of it, but it's just it's some of the most difficult shooting, but I don't take everybody in that kind of stuff, only only people i got to see if they can make it or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have to up your, because I know this is like from talking to the guys at Pike Gear and like they, they came out with the, I know the North Cut pants, like the heavy duty briar pants. And I know that's more important down, you got to up your, your pant game down there. I probably should, but I don't. I got all <laughs> No, because I just, you know, I still wear my light pants and, okay. you know, I, I'd rather take the scratches than being uncomfortable wearing a pair of heavy pants. But yeah, we got some nasty briars down here. When you guys talk about briars, I kind of laugh. Yeah, that's and that's what I. That's like me talking about cold weather. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, we got we've got very tame tame woods up here for the most part when it comes to cover. And I mean, the worst thing you can get into, and there is a good over where you hunt. I mean, that's a little bit sandier country, and you got mm-hmm. there's blackberry canes, and that's about the worst thing you can run into. Really, is a blackberry cane, yep. or yep. if you got into some young thorn apple trees or something, those things will. Yeah, some rip you know, out. and I know a few spots up there that got some good some good thorn apples, but yeah, but you're right, the blackberry is about as bad as it gets. Yeah, and that I think the the blackberry is what my uh, I was gonna I maybe I'll ask you this because the the tails with with the dogs and like. So my two setters, they have both had, you know, their tail opens up and that's very common. You see a lot of bird dogs that that hunt plenty in the cover. You get a little bloody tip on the tail, not a big deal. But a couple of years ago, my older dog Hartley, his just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I had this whole big story and I probably shared a little bit on the podcast where I had two vets that they wanted to amputate the tail, and I yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and I ended up just I probably talked to you at the time, and yeah. I talked to a few other people. And I ended up not doing anything, and Hartley recovered, so that was all good. Well, then last year Rose was a puppy. She ran quite a bit, but didn't 
we didn't get to that point. This year we did. Her tail was getting real bad, and I could tell she was in pain after hunts. And fortunately, I, I just stumbled across a, a or a, f- a friend of mine recommended this tail protector with this tape. That's really the magic to it. The tape keeps the tail protector on, and we were able to stop the abrasion. And her tail started to was able to stop the increasing damage and started to heal while we continued to hunt. So I was right. really happy to find a solution there. And I know that your dogs. I mean, your dogs are in the woods every day and they lose the hair on their tail, but they don't seem to beat them up. And so it's, it's got to be something to do with the way the dog carries the tail. Yeah, you know, my dogs don't carry a very high tail. Uh, blues is the worst. When he runs, he kind of whips with it a little bit. Okay. But, it, but, you know, they don't carry a real high tail like, like some of the other dogs. And, and I've seen, you know, pictures of yours and stuff. We've never hunted together, I don't think. But, don't, no, we haven't. But, um, but they don't seem to be too bad and of course when they get bloody you can't really tell anyway because the fur is black so right you can't get red on it yeah. but it blues gets torn up most of the the tips of all their tails i guess are, are bare right now mm-hmm. um and I, I check them to make sure there's nothing real bad and, and you know and, and put a little rubbing alcohol on there if okay. i need to clean it up a little bit but but i knock on wood i've never had any bad you know bad problems yeah and that's obviously what we want and i i tried to just kind of not let roses go, but I just wanted to see, you know, like what, what's going to happen here. And then it, it, once she started telling me, you know, with her behavior that it was bothering her, I was like, well, I got to do something. Cause right. You know, there's, there's too much season left and I, you know, she wants to keep hunting. So we've, we figured it well, out. You I was, you don't want it to create any worse problems. No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I guess what got me going on that was thinking about the cover. And if, if a dog's tail did have a tendency to get bad and then all of a sudden you drop them into the nastier stuff that could be trouble but yeah <laughs> do you get into issues thinking about that nasty tangled up cover like you know with a woodcock sometimes you get appointed and like they can be hard to flush you know so, so oh, God, yeah. you have to i suppose if you're the guide you gotta you gotta jump in the cover if the bird's not getting up you gotta go <laughs> you don't send your dogs in do you no 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 i don't send the dogs in you know because i use them for banding so they're they're completely steady that's to right yeah um, actually I've seen birds try to flush and the cover just slap them back down to the ground almost wow. you know, like they're just being smacked. Uh, um, and I've, I had one last year that the dog was pointing and we kept trying to flush the bird. We'd go from one thing, the bird would just walk to the other side. And I even got in there and was trying to crawl around to flush it. And finally I just picked up the dog and we left him alone. We just laughed. We said, he, you know, that dog, that bird won that one. We'll go find another one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we just gave up trying to even flush it. So, yeah. um, but yeah, I've seen them. I've seen them several times. Even you know, already this year down here, get get smacked back down to the ground by some of the stuff. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> crazy. So, what is the? I had written this down. What's the most challenging part about hunting woodcock down there? Is it the cover? Is it predicting where the birds are going to be? Finding the birds? Like, what's what's the most challenging piece of it? It, it really is predicting where the birds are going to be. Okay. Um, you know, the cover, like I said, I can go, and I've got places that are pretty open, and if I have an older client, an older gentleman, or, you know, I, I can take them to some more open stuff. Yeah. But, you know, t- today it could be full, and tomorrow it could be empty. Not that I hunt them every day. I'm just saying that you just never know overnight what's going to happen. Yeah. Or it could be, you know, vice versa. You could scout it on Monday. It could be empty. You can go in there on Tuesday, and then we had a nice northerly, and, you know, just load it up. Yeah. You know, up there, you pretty well know early in the season the birds are in, you know, where they are, and they're going to be there day in, day out. Down here, you just, you never know, and you just kind of try to read and read the covers early, and if they're not in one spot, 
don't be afraid to load up and drive 20 miles north or south and, and see if you find them there. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I think you kind of hinted at, like up here you sort of have the way the season plays out, we sort of have a baseline of woodcock, you know, and you if you wanted to just make it simple, you could say you got your resident birds hanging around, so you kind of know they're there, and then we're sort of waiting for that influx, and the birds go up, 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 and then then towards the end of the season it starts to get, you know, a little sparse or they're totally gone or then it changes. But, right. yeah, like you, like you said, they're not they're not coming and going nearly as much as it sounds like they would do down there. No, they you know, it, it, you're exactly right because, you know, when the flights come through north, you know, coming down up there, you know, when you get the birds coming down, you can really get some fantastic days, you know. But down here, like I said, you can go from a fantastic day to barely anything just overnight. Yeah. So let's – I want to use that a little bit to kind of transition into talking about your season up here and Woodcock in particular, this has been, it's been an interesting conversation. I think this year in that very varied reports from people and a lot of, a lot of people sort of affirming mainly the experience that I had this year was that Woodcock were, they were not nearly as present in every like all covers as they normally are. And mm-hmm. I sort of, I sort of chalk that up to dry conditions, them being very concentrated in certain areas. And I just wasn't in those areas. And I've heard that from enough of other people to know that something was going on. Now I will say there's, there's kind of an exception in that to the West where you were hunting, I felt like the Woodcock reports were much better. And I know that there were some big days had over there as far as flush counts go. So what was your perspective on Woodcock this year? Well, I, like you said earlier, I mean, we had some really good, uh, good numbers early on, starting right on opening day. You know, I had several days of, of forty birds up, and and then it, like you said, it was just so dry that they just disappeared almost overnight. Okay. And we had radio callers or uh, GPS callers on several birds, and one that we actually ban- uh, we put radio callers on two opening night right at camp that that Debbie misnetted. Oh, really. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, one of those actually went northwest 200 miles, I believe, if I believe right. But two of the birds went from that area north looking for moist ground. Wow. And it's not, you know, we, we, we banded a, a bunch of birds in the spring, I believe, that had a fantastic hatch. And we had really good flush rates early. But, you know, if they can't get in the ground to eat anything, they got to move and go find food. Mm-hmm. And, and they did. It was just so, so dry. It was amazing. Yeah, that's interesting and and i think and i don't know if you know the answer to this but you know in my head i'm sort of i just sort of as assuming that they're they're moving to find places which i think they absolutely were but like do you think there was do you think there was bird loss because of the dry drought conditions and and again i don't know the answer i don't know if if you talk to anybody that maybe was worried about that like does anything come to mind you know i've I, I don't know. I, I would say, I would guess no, but you know, I'm sure the birds will die for all right. sorts of reasons. Everything, right. but but the birds that we were we were bagging early in the season still had a pretty pretty decent amount of fat on them. Yeah. We didn't, you know, everything seemed to be very healthy. But I guess it just came to a point where like they just really could not probe enough to get worms, and there wasn't enough uh, other you know little invertebrates under the leaf pack, and they, they finally were like, you know, we got to move. Yeah, and 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 went in and, and about every direction north south east and west looking for moist ground and if you found moist ground if you had a good moist spot if you knew where any seats were or anything there were birds there yeah you could still find birds yep i had some some hunts where i where i did get into them but it was it was almost strange 
the lack of a woodcock flushes and i haven't i haven't added up my flushes or anything this year i i would be shocked if they aren't like quite a bit lower than than i've seen in the well, last I'm, yeah years. I'm, I'm a couple hundred behind okay and it, that's it's mostly from up there from the late season up there yep. but you know it's it, up there i don't really go looking for woodcock right yeah we're looking for grouse knowing i'm gonna find enough woodcock for my for my sports to to get three and generally you know unless somebody has a puppy they want to just really put in a woodcock cover mm-hmm. I, I don't specifically go looking for them up there yep that's, you don't need to you're gonna find them <laughs> exactly yep and that's that's the way that's the way i hunt i mean everything is set up around the grouse and you just ha- sort yep. of have this assumption that there will be a baseline level of woodcock to the point where i mean you know this as better well as anybody if you aren't looking to have your dogs get into a pile of woodcock you don't really want them in there because you could be into them all day yeah exactly exactly that that's really you wouldn't necessarily think about that or i guess i wouldn't to to band a, or put a gps collar tracker on a on a bird in mid-september and expect that thing to go 200 miles north i mean how how strange is that it, it, yeah it was really strange it was it was kind of fascinating to see the see the readouts on those it was it was something special one of the ones she banded or, or collared in the uh, in the spring, thirty days after doing that, she so I believe it's that and all four chicks. But thirty days after the hen flew, that one flew about two hundred miles north as well. Wow! So that's you know it's some very interesting data, and, and I, I'm pretty sure that my numbers are correct. But that's pretty interesting data. Yeah, and I, I well I, I guess it it sort of makes sense based on even the things that you're talking about with the birds. I mean they're not. They're no stranger to hopping around and moving and looking for, you know, better ground or whatever. That's what they do down south, so why wouldn't they do it up north? I guess it does make exactly. sense. Exactly. You know, and it's nothing for a bird to fly, you know, even a woodcock to fly 50 miles. I mean, boom, they yeah. do it. Yeah, I think the, I want to say the record, you know, coming out of the the eastern woodcock migration studies of Eric Blumberg out of Maine, I, th- I think they had a bird go 400 miles in one night or something. I was going to say 432 is the number <laughs> yeah. I had in my yeah. head, but yeah, over 400 miles. Isn't that crazy? Oh, you, don't yeah. think, you don't think that little bird can do that? Gosh, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, well, it's, that's, that is definitely... That's why they're so fascinating. Yeah. We still don't know anything about them. Yep, exactly. Yeah, the GPS stuff is, is very cool just to get that real-time data and really yeah. see the, again, to confirm that, yeah, they he's there one day and then he, he makes a big move and that bird is you know, halfway across the country or whatever. It's crazy. Sure. So, all right, let's, let's talk a little bit about looking for grouse when you're going and, and we're talking Minnesota at this point. So great lakes, you're setting up your hunt. Where do you go? Where do you go looking for grouse? Gosh. um. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just trying to figure So, you know, I do a lot of time on the satellite looking, um, you know, and, and when I have a good spot, I will look on the satellite from that spot to see where I can expand on. Okay, let's move over into here. Let's mm. move over into there yep. without having to move the car. I love to be able to park and, and hunt all day in a spot. So if I can do that, I mean, we might come back to the truck and switch out dogs, eat lunch, all that. But yes. if I going to say, hey, let's just go this direction now. So I try to do a lot of that. But early early in the season, they're going to be on the edges of the brood and cover. Yep. Um, you know, the bugs are still there. The aspen leaves are still there. The the fruit is still around. You, you know, your hazel catkins have not really developed much yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but this year, they, they did actually start on the hazel kind of early this year. And when they I started noticing that, we, you know, we kind of concentrated on that. I, I do love the hazel. I love to be in good hazel stands. 
um, the, the birds get food and protection all in one spot. Yep, and, and they'll be in there. Um, food sources are very important. And, you know, you, you wouldn't go goose hunting in a place that doesn't have feed for the geese to come into. So it's the same thing with grouse. You know, I I, I concentrate on food and cover very nearby each other, and I you know you learn to read the satellite maps and. Put your boots on the ground and get in there. Yep. I'm not big on walking on trails. I might use them to kind of get in a spot. Okay. But, but once once I get in there, I like to get in the woods. I like the big covers. I like the corn. Knowing you know, knowing there's a a brood of grouse on this corner up here, that kind of thing. I really enjoy that. I like to spend a couple hours at each spot and and really hunt it hard. And, and knowing where each and individual bird should be by the end of the season is kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. The um. I know, I know that you and I talked about hazelbrush last time, and then you had you. We started talking about the rhododendron, which is like you kind of mm-hmm. compared it to hazelbrush, but it never drops its leaves down there, right? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a pain in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you though. I love, I love the hazelbrush, and I know this from talking to and Jandernaw that Minnesota tends to have a lot of hazelbrush more so <laughs> than perhaps some areas of Wisconsin or Michigan. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you if you can find good hazelbrush or you've got it, more than likely the grouse are going to be using that because yeah, it grows in nice clumps and they've got protection there. And boy, they eat a lot of hazel catkins. Man, they did this year especially. They were just loaded with hazel catkins. It was fantastic. So I didn't hear you mention anything about swamps or creeks or rivers or anything. Does that does that kind of work into you? I mean, it's it's another edge, but do you pay do you pay attention to water features? Up there in the I woods. do on on bad weather days. Definitely get down in the on the edge of some cedar swamps okay. and, and look for look for that cover. Look for because you know they, they're going to try to get in out of the the, strength, the snow, the rain, whatever. Um, yep. and, and walk work those edges real real well. And it, generally within a stone's throw from the edge of a cedar swamp, there's going to be food. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's like you know the hazel is going to be right there. Plenty of food for them to eat. Plenty of ground green still that time of year, and, and they can they can really stay protected in bad weather along those edges yeah you know when we talk about food sources in specifically you know minnesota i i feel like i would say the the two most common things that i see are hazel catkins and leafy greens and Mm -hmm. i don't think that's unusual but those two things are basically everywhere in the forest so it's it's not like Whereas I've I've been on some hunts in Michigan where there's literally an orchard of thorn apple, and it's loaded with grouse because they're in there yeah. they're in there eating apples, which I just I don't feel like we see that hard you know maybe a thorn apple here or there and we've got some dogwood and stuff but it's it's yeah. it's much more rare to come across I think a food source that is like this has this magnetic effect on grouse. I mean, would you would you agree with that, or what's your perspective? Well, if, if you can find, I mean, a uh, high bush cranberry. I know mm-hmm. you know I've got a, a good handful of really good high, dense high bush cranberry. Um, not groves, but you know spots that, sure. that really. And when those are fruiting, you know, the birds are in there heavy. Um, yep. I know several spots of good thorn apples, and you know the same thing. But like this year, we didn't see much high bush right. cranberry, so yep. you kind of have to be able to you know roll with the punches and change your change your plan. And that's one of the things I look for early in the season to go in and go you know. I'm gonna hunt this spot and look and see if the if the the berries are on the bushes. You get in there, you're like, oh wow, none, not a single one. The only the only high bush cranberry I saw that really fruited out well was across the street from the driveway, <laughs> and, and across the dirt road at the at the yeah. mailbox right there. Yeah. 
And I uh, did see a grouse right by the mailbox once. This I was going to say, and there was a grouse <laughs> by the mailbox all season. So <laughs> this is that Pine Ridge grouse camp we're talking about. <laughs> great, great. Uh, that's funny. All right, yeah. So so hazelbrush, leafy greens, and again, you can kind of find that stuff everywhere. But you're looking for areas that have, you know, they've got the stem density and high concentrations, and lots of that stuff is is what you're looking for if you want to go take a big two hour loop. Right, right, right. You know, in my two-hour loops, and you know, you're going to walk through some dead, dead timber, yep. some big growth, and just go from one to the other. But with that too, you, I like to get way back in there on places that nobody else goes. Yeah, um, yep. way back in off the trail, and and you find birds still. And you know, and, and I have my best all-time flush day this fall at, at exactly 50 grouse. Wow. And we walked hard for them, and uh, but we did that. We got way back in there. We hit the hazel brush, and it, you know, it, it was a fantastic day. We put up four grouse in the first five minutes and i said it's gonna be a good day mm-hmm. and it was and it, you know like i said we got back in off the trail into places looking that i found on the satellite yep and then went in earlier and, and found the food sources knew where the birds were going to be and, and it just it panned out and sometimes it doesn't pan out but you got to try anyway yeah yeah you've got to try yep i i this year in particular i had some as i like to do those big hikes too and i had some that you know, they didn't pay off, and that was it was more related to some, I would say, just kind of inconsistent bird numbers that I was mm-hmm. I was seeing from region to region. But let's let's talk about that. A fifty grouse flush day. I mean, that's a that's a big day. And I would I would think in anybody's book, it certainly doesn't happen all the time. As you're saying, you know, you've been you've been doing this a long time, and that's your all time best day on grouse. What what time of year was it? It was uh, probably I think the third week of October. Okay, so prime and time. You know, we're getting ready to have a little rain was moving in later in that afternoon. And we did end up, you know, getting back to the truck soaking wet. We got, you know, maybe went an extra half mile too far. <laughs> but that, <laughs> was, that was my fault, not theirs. But, but you know, I, we just kept pushing and kept pushing. But um, the grouse knew the weather was coming and it was, it was changing in the process of changing. And they were really out and moving. And it was it was fantastic. Well, I sure hope great. nobody was complaining about being a little wet on a 50 grouse day. No, there was no complaints at all. We, we we earned it. Was it a new spot? It was. Um, well, like I said, it was part of a, a, a new spot off of an old spot. One little love area that. I've been love hunting. That. Yep. And, yeah, I do too. I love to do that. And it, when it pans out, it's even better. So one day I was drinking coffee and I was looking at the uh, satellite. You know, early in the morning, and I was like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get across the swamp. I knew the swamp was there, yep. but I had to figure out how to get across it. So, uh, you know, I'm sitting there blowing up the, the satellite as big as I can, and I find that I see the beaver dam down there. So I map it out, and I had a younger guy that day, and I told him, I said, we're going to hunt this spot, and then we're going to walk across, and we're going to do a little scouting. He said, all right. So we got across the beaver dam, and up on the hills, before we even, before we got across it, the dogs went ahead, and they were already locked up before we could cross the beaver dam, and we put up birds the whole way through there. And uh, And he bagged one or two that first time I went in there. So I let it sit for two more weeks. And then when the, when I had those guys, I told them I to kind of didn't really save it for them, but I, you know, I knew they were coming in. So, so we went in, we went out hard after it. Yeah. How was the shooting on a 50 grouse day? I could, I could see that being, you know, like you, you think of the opportunities plentiful, but boy, if, if things could get a little chaotic too. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's plenty, plenty of opportunity. We brought a few birds home, yep. but you know, it's still grouse, you know, there's mm-hmm. people that say they go in, they shoot three times and kill three grouse. I want to see, I want to see it personally because, you know, 
I've been doing it a long time. I've never done it. I've never seen it done, but but we, (laughs) we brought a couple birds home. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So gearing up for your next hunt, check out ugly dog hunting company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly dog hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, ugly dog hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and Fred of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. Yeah, so obviously a, a new spot where they – did you have a – this would be a good question to ask you. I felt like just gut feeling I had a lot of multi-bird flushes, and a lot of that was yep. two grouse, but but seemed to be more than normal multi-bird flushes this year. And, man, I, I don't know what it was, but did you experience that at all? Yeah, yes, sir. Yes, um, several, um, you know, several big, big broods early. Yeah, seven birds uh, several times, which is uh, not a, you know, that we expect kind of the big groups early. Yeah, but then even all the way through the end of the season, mm-hmm. even still some five bird flushes. And I always tell people, you know, my dogs, like we said earlier, they're steady to wing and shot and all that. But when that first bird goes, I, I you know, don't don't stop walking. You yeah. got to keep walking. That's that's the first bird. He's the nervous one. Yep. Now keep walking, and you know, you, more than likely we're going to put up extra birds and, and it happened so many times. I, I can't even remember, but, but I agree with you. Yes. Even late into the season, we're still putting up multiple flushes. Well, late into the season for me, I, you know, I come back home here in right. November. So, so right. you guys are still at it, but yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd say it's, it's kept up. And then, but then there is some, like when you get this late into the year, like late November, you know, then you kind of expect them to group back up. I, I would say, you know, and I like, I'm certainly not the expert on this, but generally, you know, we sort of expect to get into family groups and broods of birds early. So you think September Mm -hmm. and then you kind of think birds are spreading out and dispersing and you're going to get more single bird flush. Now you can flush, you can flush a two or three bird flush at any point during the season. It's not, it's not unheard of, but it's just that pattern that, that we're getting at. It seemed to be that they the birds stuck together or i don't i don't know well, what the only it was. thing i could really think of was that, that you know with the fact that the food sources seem to be a little more limited mm-hmm. this year yeah that they're all congregated around whatever food source they were in that, at that time um you know the clover when it started getting cold even the clover back in the the little weird sunny spots back in the middle of the woods yep. was really um but I, I think that that as the as the food sources got narrower and narrower the uh the birds kind of got pushed back together yep yep yeah i i would say it, it happened enough this year because normally it's like in the grouse woods there is kind of a there's a built-in expectation of like okay 
dog goes yep. on point, you walk in, you flush a grouse, that, that bird's gone. You know, we're on to the next yep. one. But I had so many double flushes this year that I, I eventually got to the point where I was ready. I was ready for the second one, which is, that's saying something, because I, I think that is kind of unusual. It, it is, and you, you're right. Even yesterday, I, you know, when I was scouting that spot yesterday afternoon, the dog pointed, and I walked into Woodcock Flush, and I had a puppy down, so I was working with her, and uh, I shot my training pistol. And then we stood there for a second, and then I sent her on without really paying attention to her dad, who was still pointing, not just standing. I should have paid better. So the second bird went up, which you know is is you know kind of rare to put up yeah. woodcock in multiples, but yep. you know still learning learning lessons. So <laughs> exactly, yeah. All right, so talking about multi bird flushes and telling people to keep walking. This is this is something I mentioned to you when we were up at camp. I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on approaching a dog on point in the rough grouse woods because you're obviously guiding people so you're you're coaching people into that you know on a daily basis and what do you tell people and i think a lot of it can be specific to like your dogs and how you how you do things but how do you you know how do you like to approach a point if it is just you and your dogs and then maybe how does that differ from what you tell your clients well, okay, so if I have two clients, for instance, that's generally the, the number. Um, you know, I'll spread one one to each side about 10 feet. Um, depending on the dog and what the dog's doing, I can tell if it's, you know, if we're just going to start a track, so to speak. Yep. Uh, my, the dogs are sensitive. I, I train them to stop, you know, first first in, stop there. I don't I don't want to move. And even... Even just wait for us to catch up, and then we'll and then we'll we'll trail, we'll relocate. Some of them are very different. Some of them reload quickly, uh, relocate very quickly. I got some that trail like a cat and just tiptoe along right along the scent trail. Yep. Um, they're both very effective, and I tell clients, you know, whatever's happening, um, just kind of stay with. If they're trailing, say if if it's one of the dogs that trails real slowly, I'll say, you know, just stay ten feet off to each side. If she turns left, turn left with her. And I'm watching the dog. If the dog's tail's still wagging, we're birdie. But the slower it goes, we're getting closer. Mm, yep. And then when that dog decides she's close enough, he's close enough, and it stops, generally we're probably 15, 20 yards from the bird at that point. And then I just say, okay, just keep walking. Yep. Um, if, if, it's, if it's me, if I was grouse hunting by myself, I would stay off to the side of the dog, whichever one you kind of pick the side and yep. go with it. But that way the, the bird sees, still sees two predators, and, and hopefully it'll give you a look. If you walk in directly behind the bird, the bird can concentrate on just one spot to hide from when it flushes. Yep. And by hide from, I mean it always flush behind a tree that way. Yep. And, you know, you might see it flush, and then you don't see it until it's out there about 40 yards again. Um, if it's if, if you're by yourself, I would I would definitely stay off to the side of the dog um, and even loop around a little bit. And it just, you know, depends on how the dog's quartering, how the dog's hunting, which direction you're going into it. Yep. And if you're lucky enough and the bird is between you and the point dog, if your dog's pointing at you, you know, looking at you and, and you're walking in, you know that bird's pinched, you're going to get a good look. Yep. Yeah, that's good stuff. That's, like you said, it is a constant, I mean, it just takes time. It takes walking in on lots and lots of points, which you have done. And everyone is different, but that's where, it, you know, it's the importance of being able to read your dog. And I was really curious to, I knew that about your dogs, that you had some, and and I, t- I think I talked to Kyle Warren about this when he was on the podcast about mm-hmm. where you've got dogs that are legitimately tracking and they're kind of creeping along and stalking and that kind of dog you're going to sort of stay more even with and you're going to kind of be following the track right along with the dog yeah. yep. versus a dog that relocates differently where they're kind of more coursing back and forth trying to hit that 
scent again. I mean, is that how you would describe it? You know, I think you're exactly right. Just trying to hit that scent cone again. Yeah. Uh, Sasha, for instance, she she trails very, very slowly, and so does Arlo, the imported dog. Very slowly, very particular about where they put their feet down, the whole thing. It kind of kind of slow. It's super effective, but, you know, you, you just you walk along with them, and like I said, reading the dog, knowing, knowing how close we're getting. And then you look at Blue Blue and Cronin, for instance. When they relocate, they relocate very quickly. Mm-hmm. They, they're looking for the fresh scent cone, not yeah. so much the foot track. The only thing with that is it's, you, the dog's going to be further ahead of you, and if that bird's nervous, you know, it, it's going to flush. Yep. Whereas a, a, a bird that knows you're coming and you're coming really slowly, I mean, I see birds on the ground all the time doing that. I'm like, well, there's a grouse up there. You know, he's 20 yards ahead. I see him, and, and finally he'll run into a – you know, run into a, a blowdown or something like that, and then you know you got him. Yeah, um, you you know you got at least you're going to get a good look at him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the easy part. Then he flushes, and then it gets hard. <laughs> yeah, I can I can think of uh, there was a day up there. I know you were there. This is I was. We had a late night the night before, so I think <laughs> I think that played into it. And I went out hunting the next morning and I was just like in the middle of like the worst shooting slump. And I started hunting. I put Hartley down and he had a grouse pointed within five minutes that kind of worked out perfectly. I wasn't really expecting to flush a grouse that fast. I mean, I don't know. There's no reason not to, but you just sort of have this, like, you're just not in the groove yet. Right. But I had a decent look at that and I missed it. And then we start, then we, we move on. And five minutes later, Hartley goes on point and we're in like, probably like 15 or 16 year old Aspen where the understory was shaded out and there was really nothing there other than, you know, decent pole size Aspen. And then there was, I mean, it was a small, like about the size of a dog bed, little clump of stuff that (laughs) Hartley moved. He he was pointing it and then he moved and slammed on point looking right at this thing. So I'm like, well, there's either a bird in there or like, I've never seen Hartley point a porcupine, but like you could, you could think the same thing, right? Well, I walked in and I bet you I was standing over top of this grouse looking looking down on it. Nick came blown out of there and like almost too close at that point. Like I was so startled and I <laughs> I think I shot when it was like five yards away and I, right. I, I missed it and that was Thank goodness, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I know I went I went oh for seven that day and it was uh it was a it was a big talk around camp. It was uh I know, my head we, was we hanging. <laughs> You do it. I know it, it's one of those things, but it's, that's it, the it's, dream scenario, never, though. That's what's crazy about them. You know, you see them out on the dirt road, and they just they look at the car like what? You know, they yeah. just stand there and look at them. But then you put a dog on the ground, and you get back in the woods, and they're just they're so wary, and, and everything is always expect the unexpected. Yes, yeah, that's that's a good way to put it for sure. But I think like the key takeaway on approaching the point, you hit on something that I think is very important. I mean, it's certainly what I try to do. And I think it's fairly obvious that you're trying to limit escape pathways for the grouse. And and you talked about that in that if you, if you come right up on behind your dog or you're, you're approaching the bird from the same angle, you give that bird, you know, 350 degrees of escape route versus cutting it down to 180 or 90. Like, the dream scenario is you have it pinched in between you and the dog because then he's theoretically got a lot less decisions as far as yeah. where he can escape. And that's those are just the little things that you're you're always trying to do it. And there's all these influences on you, like what the dog is doing, what the cover is doing, where you can physically go and where you physically can't go. And it's just a 
I think, I mean, I know for a fact that's one of the things that I love about it is that that chess match when your dog is on a grouse and it's all playing out in real time right in front of you and you're making these decisions every, you know, every step you take trying to make everything come together so that you've got bird in the air, open look, and you can get a shot. And, you know, sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. But, I mean, that is grouse hunting to me. Yep. Yeah, and, and constantly readjusting and and reassessing yeah. the, the situation in real time that's getting ready to happen because you only have a split second to shoot. Yeah, and you know it, you, it's not a you know you're not looking at a flock of ducks coming in over the ocean that you got forever to watch them. You you know, you you got to maximize that that split second and being off to the side to where the grouse has to kind of go off at an angle of both of you and that grouse knows where he wants to go already. Yes. Uh, he, he knows his escape route. He knows where he wants to go. And you're just trying to give yourself that opportunity of getting a good enough look at him to, to shoot him. I'm curious about, and this wouldn't necessarily apply to all the listeners or anything, but I'm, I'm curious about like when that is happening and you've got, you've got people that you're guiding with you. I mean, there's some level of communication that has to occur. You know, if you're out there by yourself, you don't have to say anything, right? And that's the best. Right. Like right. any, any talking or additional talking is going to be it's going going to have a chance to unsettle that bird but what like what do you have to do with you know i'm assuming you have to do some communicating and talking to people as this is going on i do i do i do a lot of kind of hand signals and mm. you know it moves that way kind of thing um but most you know you're trying to, to stay them, quiet get them, i'm trying to get them to move forward the bad thing especially with with the newer guys or people that have never grouse hunted is, is to walk up behind the dog and stop. Yeah. Like, you know, so, so I, no, 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 you got to, you got to realize these dogs could be pointing that grouse at 20 and 30 yards and even further. I know, you know, blue had one, the guys just said, there's no way that dog was pointing that bird. Yeah. Cause it was so far. And I said, well, he's standing back there pointing it, but, but you have to realize, don't, you know, I tell them, I try to stress as soon as the dog points, forget the dog, just don't even worry about mm-hmm. it anymore. Yep. You know, just keep walking. We're going to possibly be 20 yards ahead of the dog when the bird flushes. Yeah. So getting them getting them moving and staying moving and still staying ready, and, and you know as well as I do, the bird's going to flush when you're crawling under a yep. log or over a log or whatever, but but still trying to be as ready as possible for that flush. And with that, and, and I'm, I'm kind of there with them. I'm coaching them as best I can. Um, the older guys that have done it a lot, I just let them go, but the younger guys, the new ones, I'm trying to coach them the whole way, but I'm super excited too. I mean, yeah. my heart's racing. I'm yeah. ready. And then when the birds flush, I start hollering and screaming, shoot it, growl, shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a, I've done a little bit of volunteer guiding and, and I did a few days this year. And I mean, I knew, I knew I respected what you guys did, but when you got to go out there and sort of, you're not just hunting for yourself and you're, you're sort of responsible for somebody else's day and enjoyment. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of extra responsibility and it's, it's a different approach to hunting. So, uh, I, uh, I know you do a fantastic job and it's, uh, it's not an easy job. I I enjoy doing it. I think just the fact that I I just enjoy doing it so much, you know, guiding, you have to realize that it's just the hospitality industry. We're trying to make people's day the best it can be, but but you're trying to make their enjoyment. So guiding is, is one of those things that you have to be careful people ask me you know and i love I, lo- I love hunting i love to be in the woods but i don't necessarily have to shoot anymore i've done my fair share and i love to see other people enjoy the day you know the new people that are just learning or the old people that that only get out a couple times a year yeah. so you know if you love if you love hunting enough and you, you still want to shoot a lot you, probably not guiding is probably not for you 
on a full-time scale anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but if you, you know, if you love watching other people do it, cause that's really all you do. You're watching. I try to video, you know, you know me, I love my videos. Yep. Yep. I'm not great at it. But I just use my phone, but, but I like to catch that. I like to catch a little bit of the excitement. People love when I can get a, a good shot of theirs on a oh, video. Yeah. They, yep. they love to watch it. And you know, I, I, I like that part of it. Yeah. I, I might have to get you set up with a GoPro or something next year. <laughs> you know, I got one. I just got to remember to Oh, really? You. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I had to get me set up on how to use it. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could coach you a little bit on that. And I, I mean, I think that's, that's just it though. Like those moments that the dog work, you know, the, the awesome dog work that results in that ridiculous grouse flush that we all live for. I mean, you know, there's some magic to the fact that, you know, you can only experience that being out there in the woods, but when they're your dogs and, and it's your hunts, like it, it's fun to capture some of that stuff, I think. And it's, it's getting easier to do that. And I, I always enjoy the videos that you put up. <laughs> Thanks. I forgot to ask you this when we were talking about cover, but what about oaks? Do you pay any attention to oaks? Cause they have some over to the West over there. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, down here, acorns are very important to the Appalachian grouse. Right. But up there, especially, I think was it two years ago, we had a fantastic, uh, acorn crop up there. And, um, and there were certain spots that had a dense overstory of large, mature oaks with an understory of, of a mix of hazel mm. and, you know, young birds, young yeah. asp and all that. So the thick was there too. Yep. And the ground was covered in acorns and they were loaded with grouse. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely loaded. Acorns are a fantastic food source. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's just, you don't see that everywhere, but if you're, if you're in an area that is growing oaks, I mean, they're, yeah, that's a, that's another good yeah. component to good grouse cover. It really is. Yeah, it really is good. We talked about relocating a little bit. I think we sort of covered that topic i was just kind of and i i knew a little bit about your dogs but i want to ask you about unproductive points this has been something that it's kind of been a topic for me this year because my year and a half old setter rose she had some stretches this year where she had some unproductive like an increase in unproductive points and at one point it was like a week or two where she was just really into rabbits and she was pointing a bunch of rabbits and i eventually figured it out and i talked to Jerry Coulter and Justin McGrail about this and kind of, I sort of had an idea of what to do, which is basically, you know, you don't make a huge deal about it, but if you know it's a rabbit, you move the dog on and just kind of forget about it. And you're hoping that they get out of it, but there's always some mystery to unproductive points that if you don't see what it is, you know, and it's truly an unproductive, then you don't know, you know, you can't really do much at that point. So getting to my question for you is have you, or do you have dogs that, do it more than others, and and how do you approach those scenarios? I don't know that I have any that do it any more than the other okay. ones. And under, you know, and unproductive are just, in, in my opinion, especially in the grouse woods, are something you're going to just kind of have to live with if yeah. you have very sensitive, cautious dogs. And I would say mine are very, really cautious, yeah. um, some more so than others maybe. But I don't... I just, I tell people at the very beginning of the day, you know, I, I can tell what the dog's doing. If she's up there, if she's just flagging, then more than likely she's just got a little bit of scent mm-hmm. um, or he or whatever. And, and they're just waiting for us to catch up before they move on. The older dogs learn to relocate on their own. Uh, I can make them stand there all day if I want to. Right. Uh, the puppies, I don't let them, I don't let them run, you know, relocate until they, until I, you know, verbally tell them to move on. But if it's, I don't know if, if it's a, a constant problem you're having with a dog. One, yeah, you, if you don't know if it's a rabbit or not, but I do break mine from fur very early on in life, so we don't really have that problem. How do you go um, about that? 
just find roadkill and a shot collar. Yeah, <laughs> I know yeah, it yeah. sounds bad, yeah. but I, I, I break them from, you know, down here we have a whole lot of deer. And, and I've seen my dogs have run right up on bedded deer that have jumped up right in front of them. And, you know, they, they look at them, but they ignore them. They don't chase. And that could be a problem. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I do take care of that. You know, I know in the European dogs are, are used for hair. But I don't. I don't want to. You know, and up there you got snowshoes all over the place. Yeah. There's a lot of them this year too. Day, he's yeah. not pointing. He, you know, he's not pointing grouse, and and you know, clients don't want to trail snowshoes all day. No. Nope. Um, and I, you know, I've seen the dogs run right up on snowshoes, just not pay them a second mind. Yeah. But I'm not saying that any of these unproductive trails or or, or points might not have been a snowshoe. I don't think they are. Um, but like you said, if if there's nothing there, you really don't know. You just move the dog on and hope they don't do it again. <laughs> And hope they don't do it again. <laughs> yeah. But but you know you got to trust the dog. You got to trust the yes. nose. That the one time you say, "Oh, it's probably just another rabbit," you know you're going to have a perfect opportunity to pair a grouse that flush, you know, ten degrees apart, and you could have an easy double. And you're standing there with an empty gun, going, "Oh, I thought it was going to be a rabbit." <laughs> trust the nose. Yeah, and that's I guess that's where I was kind of wanting to get to. And I mean, there is some level of getting your thoughts on like you know unproductive points are just a part of hunting with, with yep. pointing dogs. I mean, it's going to happen. And I can say that while Rose did have like that little uptick in unproductive points, that didn't persist and the rabbits didn't, they did not stay a problem for me. So I was happy about that. But the flip side of that is like what you were, I mean, she has proven to me in her two short seasons in the grouse woods that she's got a nose on her and she will, she will produce grouse from from those points that like, if I don't trust her, I'm going to be embarrassed immediately. Right. And yep. I mean, that's, that's what makes it fun. It, you know, it's, it, it is. if, it if is. you walked in and kicked up a grouse every time, it wouldn't, wouldn't nearly be the same, but those are just some of the yep. things you've got to, you've got to deal with and, and that, work through that's part of the game. That's why they're so wary. I mean, that's, that's part of it. You know, you, maybe that bird flushed before you really got, you heard it, you didn't hear it. And right. You know where it was. Maybe it's just a, a young, really crazy, nervous bird. And, so interestingly, I was out on Tuesday, which was the uh, December fourteenth. We were hunting, and there was there was about a two inches of snow on the ground. And of course, the, the cool thing about that is you can see grouse tracks, which yeah, could be a blessing and a curse. <laughs> you see a lot of tracks and no birds. You're like, what the heck? And you know, you're wondering like, man, is this just one bird leaving all these tracks? Which they can leave a lot of tracks, but I'm sure, yeah. I was seeing a bunch of tracks, and I I walked into this little spot and. I crossed two or three sets. I knew that two or three girls had moved through there. And of course I'm, you know, gosh, like, how, you know, are they close or, and I, I've seen, I've walked up on tracks and flushed the grouse. Like I've walked up on fresh sets of tracks like that. Well, this time I didn't flush any birds, but Rose wasn't around. And then she came in and I was watching her to see if she would scent something. And sure enough, when she crossed those tracks, she, she didn't stop and point like it wasn't that fresh, but she smelled the tracks and then she started coursing around, kind of sniffing all around. And my, I don't know the answer, but I just immediately started thinking, man, how cool would it be to know when those grouse were there? Cause I, you know, yeah. is she smelling? How long ago? How, yes. how fresh is that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'd love, I'd love for them to be able to say, Hey, yeah, it smells like yesterday. It smelled like five <sighs> yeah, minutes ago. I know. Bird right there, you know, yeah. but that, I, you know, it's funny cause Sasha's last year was a little dusting of snow on the ground. And and I could see the track. I set a tracks up through there, and mm. she was almost. She was doing her slow trail. It's almost like a moving point. Yep. And I had the guys on either side, and she was almost step for step right on those tracks. Of course, I mean, she didn't know. That. She could smell them, not see them, but 
but she was it was amazing it was really neat to, to verify it's like verification and yes go, okay that is exactly what she's been doing yeah yeah and it's i mean it's just crazy to think about that you know they can smell again smelling just the grouse's feet in the snow yeah. and they're smelling something there and then you know remove the snow for most of the season and you know they're smelling that that foot trail yep. it's just ah. still there <laughs> yeah it's unbelievable <laughs> it's fantastic yeah oh i did want to ask you you were you were up there when the folks from yukonuba were there we're gonna none of that stuff you haven't seen any videos or anything come out of that yet have you no i haven't seen any of the videos or anything i've had privy of a few a few photographs but okay nothing at least the, the, from the fall yeah yeah well i know you are uh proud member of team yukonuba as am i what do you like about yukonuba i love the the quality of the food is evident in the fact that you know i have long-haired setters yep and they're in the woods up there every day of the every single day of the week the whole trip they're up there you know and and they're running through this thick stuff and year-round and and their coats are nice they're long and shiny except for the tip of the tail but nothing (laughs) no food and that but even like i tell people so Sasha, for instance, she's hunted the most. She's hunted every day I've been out, so 68, 70 days, whatever it is now. And she's just come into heat. So even with the amount of exertion her body is going through, mm. she still has a high enough body composition and and nutrient level that, that Mother Nature said, okay, you're ready to go into heat. And that's never happened before I started feeding you canoe. And I know what happens. You know, dogs, I've never had dogs come into heat during hunting season before until I started feeding you canoe. Let's just put it that way. Interesting. Um, I never, I never realized a steady diet of, well, a diet's the wrong word to use, but like a vigorous activity hunting season could prevent a dog from coming into heat. The way I read it, and like, I'm not a, I'm not a biologist, but or a scientist or anything, yeah, yeah. but dogs, mother nature has, has created, you know, within the, the bitch's body, until she has an excess of vitamins, nutrients, minerals, and all that, everything that can support a litter of puppies, she will not come into heat. Yeah. Uh, you know, so makes so the total fact that sense. She can, they can exercise like that, and and two of them came into heat within a, you know just a short period of time of each other. Like I said, it just never happened until I started feeding Yukonuba, and 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 the company itself, the customer service. I mean, I'm I'm all on board. They they take good care of us. Yeah. And, Sitting down with Russ and just talking about the R and D and everything about dogs up at camp this year was fantastic. His his knowledge of dogs is mind boggling. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's just to pick his brain, just the tiniest little bits and pieces are amazing. So I really enjoyed those those conversations. Yeah, yeah. Russ is a guy that I I had some chats with the folks up at camp too. I'm gonna try to get him on this podcast eventually. I think he would have plenty okay. plenty to share. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Really, what I wanted to get to get at there was kind of what do you look for to know that your dogs are doing well on on food and i mean there's basic things kind of watching their weight and seeing how they're yeah, how they're maintaining you know, keeping their weight on and and you know I, you don't I'm, I'm not feeding a huge amount of food they're getting all the nutrition they knew, need from just a little bit more than their average yeah. year-round field size but but their weight's good like you know they're not skin and bones this time of year their their eyes are good they're everything seems to be good. Nobody's out there limping around injured. Every, their joints are all good. And I got, you know, a couple of nine year old dogs and, and they're, they're still hunting hard. So. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's a testament, not, not necessarily just to the food, but like the condition of your dogs and stuff. And I, I think any injuries or ailments this year, I mean, to be in the woods as much as you are with these dogs doing what they do, like, you know, injuries are bound to happen at some point, but 
it sounds like unfortunately yes uh, yeah. this, this is my first year dale one of my nine-year-old dogs got a, a bad stick in the eye mm. um, early october up there and he, he he's going to be retired from his professional career because i can't keep up with a, a you know a dog it, it, he can still see out of it and we we've nursed him back and you know we've put the medicated and all that he did not lose his eye but okay he, it's it's cloudy um unfortunately so so i will retire him from guiding life but I, i'll take him out by myself and you know and i have down here i've taken him out by myself several times i don't know that i'll if i have one client maybe i'll take him out but but i can't try to keep up with him and and clients yeah well. like, yeah not fair to the clients if i'm having to run back and go look for a dog that can't find me that kind of thing yeah what is his how's his hearing i was hearing fine he, okay. he does okay with that i can call him back in but but you know there's enough there's still plenty more sticks in the woods, but you know, yeah. like you said, I, I feel very, I've done this for a, a few years now with a lot of dogs and a lot of days in the woods. So I feel fortunate, you know, I know that sounds bad, but that's the only injury I, any of them have sustained. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's very good. What yeah. regarding the dog's hearing, because I had a, I've got a friend of mine that he's got a short hair that's, she's getting older and her hearing, it seemed to take like, this was the first year really noticed that her hearing was getting less in that, you know, she still covers plenty of ground. So like she would sort of lose track of us. And then we would have some, have some moments of like where we had to kind of pause the hunt to try to get her, get her back, right. which, and he's got a GPS collar on her. So that helps and stuff. But have you had that happen? And, and I mean, I, I know it's just basically part of having dogs that get old. Yeah. Well, yes. Years and years ago, I mean, the, the dogs passed away now and it's, and you know, it's one of those things you have to decide when when to retire them yeah. if it's you know if it's an eyesight problem or a hearing problem you have to decide or do you hunt them in really small spots that they know very well mm, yep. um and, and you know the last thing you want to do is retire one because they absolutely love doing right it. but you also have to put their safety in, you know in mind first and you know honestly i think you know any one of these dogs would, would gladly die in the woods hunting yeah, yeah. versus growing old in the pen but but theoretically you know honestly as an owner you can't do that you you have to be very safe with your dogs and you don't want to lose them out there especially up north in the big woods you right know? but i have not had too bad of problems knock yeah. on wood <laughs> yeah well yeah that's that's very fortunate and good to hear what's your plans for the rest of the year do you you don't i mean you pretty much spend most of your hunting season chasing grouse and woodcock do you get out and do anything else you don't you don't do a western trip or anything or haven't done no no i've done that i lived in idaho a little bit in the 90s so okay. i got the western stuff out of my system i guess no i'm just you know and i don't have a whole lot of interest in it you know and it's you know the prairies and all that really there are no trees i love to be in the woods i love to be in the forest <laughs> yeah the woodcock is one of my favorite birds as a, as a kid so i just i really enjoy them so yeah. you know well our season runs through the end of january um, I'm pretty well booked up, so yeah, I got a lot of a lot of guide days ahead of me here, um, and then I'll run, you know, finish up the, the the two puppies through the end of February when the birds either start nesting down here or and or moving back north. Mm, yep. Um, and then so one of the puppies will relocate to his new home in Massachusetts late February. I'll finish him off. Um, got a like a, a bread last week, so I might have a litter of puppies in early February. Cool. And then just move on from that and then come back up in the spring with, you know, for the banding program and sure. all that and yep. start all over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Love it. Sounds like a good, good plan for the rest of the year and into 2022. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just moving right ahead. I, I do like the, how you just kind of follow the woodcock around. 
<laughs> you know they're they're addicting. You got to be careful with those little birds. <laughs> uh, that's funny. So I I haven't seen your uh, haven't seen your name on the list. Jerry hasn't hasn't twisted your arm into an Upland Gun Company gun yet. You know, I've got a funny joke. I tell people, say, have you seen my Upland Gun Company uh, gun yet? And people say, no. And I go, yeah, me either. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, when I'm up there, I just shoot whatever. If I shoot, you know, I, I very rarely do yeah, anymore. But, yeah. but I, I brought the hammer gun home with me. I, I killed a couple of oh, did you? Wilcock up there with the hammer gun, okay. and I brought it home with me. So it's here with me. So, I'm, I, you know, I might shoot a Wilcock or two with it and over the winter. But I, I really enjoy it. You know, the 20 gauge is it, it's a fantastic little gun i it enjoy is. shooting the hammer gun and yeah. you know and taking a grouse or a woodcock with a hammer gun is kind of special it just throws in that little bit of extra um what is it a little bit a little bit of hesitation it just changes things up just enough to throw your timing off i'll tell you that yeah yeah i know i missed the grouse with that exact same gun last fall so oh yeah know. oh i am but I did, I did kill a really nice one over a really beautiful point. It was a perfect retrieve, and of course I was out there, and it, you know it's just it, it, it's nice. It kind of sums up sums up a, a good fall. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, I think that about wraps up the conversation for today, Stephen. It's it was great to connect with you a little bit this fall, and thank you for coming onto the podcast and sharing a lot of your uh, knowledge and experience with the listeners. I sincerely appreciate it, and I look forward to probably seeing you again this spring. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. It's good to talk to you anytime, and and, uh, and I appreciate it. Sounds good, buddy. You have a great rest of your hunting season. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all that good stuff, and we'll talk to you soon. You too. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, Stephen. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Bird Shop Podcast. Quick reminder, we are presented by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, CZ USA, Garmin, Sage and Breaker, Uplander Lifestyle, and Dakota 283. Rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. Catch you on the next episode of the Bird Shop Podcast. This is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.